Lord, we come here today to be taught by you. We ask, Lord, that your ancient words would speak to us today, that your Holy Spirit would come and impart these words to our hearts, Lord. May we treasure them. May we hide them in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Teach us the way of the righteous this morning. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you that we are able to mark occasions of your faithfulness, events such as graduation. We thank you and we praise you for the gifts of motherhood. Many of us who were taught the faith by our mothers, and Lord, we pray especially for them on this day. We pray not only for those that are present, but also those who may be experiencing some illnesses today, may not be able to worship with us. And we even pray for those who have already gone on ahead, that they are rejoicing in your throne room. And we pray even for them, Lord, that their enjoyment of you might be even more. So Lord, bless us this day. Allow us, Lord, to experience the fruit of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, today we have the privilege of being able to recognize a special group among our congregation, the class of 2023. Now, we don't always do special emphasis Sundays at Providence, but this is one that we feel is worthy of annual notice. Many of our high school and, and college students will be leaving us to make their way into the world to the place that God will call them. So in some ways, our time this morning operates as a commissioning service. Graduates, we are proud of you. We look forward to seeing what God is going to do in you and through you in the days ahead. And thank you for being here and allowing us to praise the Lord for you. And yet it just also so happens to be a special day for another group within our congregation. It is Mother's Day. It is also a day to honor God for the gift of mothers. And to each mom out there, we are grateful for you as well. Thank you for being in attendance. So with both groups in mind, the next passage in Genesis, which is the curse upon Canaan, just didn't seem appropriate for this occasion. I, I quickly dispensed with that idea, but, but now I had the challenge of what to preach instead. It seems it'd be too wide of a diversity to, to find a fitting text for both. After all, one group is getting ready to assert their independence, while another may be grieving that the child is leaving the nest to, to spread the wings on this very day. What counsel would be relevant to such a diverse group and yet also be a benefit to all of us? Well, it just so happened that I offered a verse to a friend a week ago from Psalm 37. I remembered the words, but I couldn't remember the number of the verse. Yes, even I have problems remembering specifics at my age. And so I looked it up, and the words I was searching for were at verse 8. But that exercise led me towards reading this psalm in its entirety. And I thought to myself, well, this is it. This is the message that the Lord wants all of us to hear on this particular Sunday. And it might even be a fitting transition to the conclusion of Genesis 9. Now, many of you might remember this psalm well. It was our psalm of the year back in 2014. That was the year that we instituted our summer prayer meeting. So even if you're overly familiar with the text, some were not present during that time nine years ago. 
allow me to provide you just a little bit of background to this psalm. And then rather than go verse by verse through it, I want to provide us with its major themes and explain why it can still be relied upon today. And then I want to give some directions on how it might be used by graduates and moms and any other member of the body of the Christ in the days ahead. So very briefly, I'm going to be covering the structure, the themes, the guarantee behind the psalm, and how it can be used. That's the structure, the themes, the guarantee behind the psalm, and how it can be used. Now, if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 37. Again, this is found on page 466 of your pew Bible. Let's begin by looking at the structure of Psalm 37. There are four observations I wish to make here. First, the heading tells us the author. It is King David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, some scholars propose that this is an early poem of David. In their minds, it seems weaker than some of his others, particularly in comparison with a magnificent work like Psalm 119. But I doubt that. This, this might have been written when David was shepherding his father's flocks on the countryside or when he was still a warrior for King Saul. But, but it seems like it's coming from someone who has lots of life experiences and they're writing from this perspective of been there and done that. Verse 25, he says he was young and he's now old. And verse 35 comes from the idea of someone with an extended life perspective. In my humble opinion, this seems to be written from the viewpoint of a king. We forget that David was a king in every sense of the word. He didn't just march out and achieve great victories with his armies. He had real responsibilities and couldn't lie about in bed. He was a judge. He was an administrator, a person responsible for the well-being of a kingdom. Someone who is familiar with dealing with people. Someone used to, to juggling day-to-day -day decisions. Someone who knew what it was like to be at their wit's end of being overly tasked. How he even found time to write poetry just blows my mind. And this leads us to our second observation. There is no main topic throughout the psalm. Other psalms have a razor-sharp focus to them. We could point to the previous psalm, Psalm 36, which is an ode to the covenantal love of Yahweh. Or we could look at Psalm 13 or Psalm 22, which are dark moments of suffering and lamenting under hardship. Or even the magnificent Psalm 119, which is about God's law. But there is no overarching theme in this psalm. This, this one seems to be all over the place. This seems like a psalm for the student that feels the pride of graduating and celebration with friends, yet also feels the pressure of choosing a college, filling out scholarship applications, trying to figure out how to make more money, having a friend betray you with gossip, having anxiety about your future, that every decision you make is the most important, and also oversleeping and you're afraid you're going to lose your part-time job. Can you relate a little bit to that? Yeah. Then this psalm is perfect for you. Or we could equally say it's the perfect psalm for the mother. You know, the mother who is trying to talk on the phone with her best friend who's going through some marriage difficulties, and at the same exact time, one child is crying, one child has a dirty diaper, an email she needs to get sent out to the workplace, and the UPS man is ringing the doorbell with a package that she needs to sign for. Moms, can you relate to that? Then this psalm is perfect for you. 
And since the Spirit has this in the Bible, then I have a strong suspicion this is a psalm for every one of us, no matter what we're going through in our life circumstances. But as varied as the range of the topics of Psalm 37, it does have a definite structure. And that's our third observation. It is an acrostic. There are two lines each that begin with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you're using an NIV or an ESV or a New King James, you're able to see the divisions of the individual Hebrew letters with the space that shows you where the next letter begins. Now, your New American Standards and King James uh, Bibles uh, and our worship guide doesn't do that to save space. So if you'd like to see it, you can open it up to your pew Bible in front of you to see these. Normally, when an alphabetic acrostic is used, it means that this subject, or it's talking about this subject it's as the total package from, from A to Z. So, for example, the most famous Hebrew acrostics are Psalm, or uh, Proverbs 31, which describes the ideal wife, and Psalm 119, which David composed eight lines each, beginning with a Hebrew letter as a praise to the Word of God. But here, while there is no main topic, the psalm is tightly structured. Obviously, David wants to get something across, which is why I've entitled our sermon, The ABCs of Life. I derive from this text that David is teaching us something about the way to live life. And to help us understand that, our final observation is that this is a wisdom psalm. It's composed of multiple proverbs. Now, if you're brand new to Providence, our congregation is familiar with wisdom literature. We studied Proverbs as our last Old Testament book prior to our study in Matthew. As a genre, wisdom literature is unique from the rest of Scripture. It primarily tells us that there are two ways to live, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And a wise proverb is meant to guide a person in choosing the right way to do the next right thing. Now, a common misconception is that a proverb is a promise. That is not the case. It is a general observation of life. The wisdom writer or the sage has had life experience and they write from the perspective that if one makes this choice within a particular circumstance, then this can be the expected consequence or outcome. Usually there's a pleasant blessing when making the right choice. However, it is not always the case that the blessing is immediate. But it's more important when making the decision that a person is righteous, doing the right thing by pleasing the Lord. So let me provide you just with the scenario. You're having some financial problems, and your taxes are due. And you could fudge the numbers just a little bit so you can get some extra money. But you read Psalm 37, verses 3 through 4, which begin with the Hebrew letter bet. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you decide in that moment, well, I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. I'm going to do good as I dwell in this land. So you write out your check or you hit submit for the full amount that you owe. And yet, your situation hasn't changed you're still experiencing financial difficulties. At the moment, the desire of your heart is to be free of the burden of debt so you can possibly maybe buy a new car. But then you also read Psalm 37, 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the many wicked. So you are relying on that truth 
that though you are still in hardship, pleasing the Lord is more important than having an abundance in a wicked manner. Now, one final point under this observation. The word wicked is used 13 times in this psalm. And sadly, in context, it's always attributed to fellow Israelites. Not once does it refer to a pagan. This is David talking about people who would identify as members of the covenant community. And they're choosing to go their own way, either deliberately or through ignorance by neglecting the wisdom of the scriptures. And I would say this implies that Christians, as well as unbelievers, are capable of making wicked choices, poor choices. So we need to take heed as David gives us this day-to-day advice on life. Personally, I find it amazing that such a psalm can can speak to the whole of life, not just a Middle Eastern king, not just for a graduate, not just for mom, but even for a pastor, husband, father, citizen living in Huntsville, Alabama. It's truly awe-inspiring. So now that we've looked at the structure of the psalm, I'd like you to see three major themes that are meant to be applied by the reader. Now, I'm not an alliteration guy, But in my studies, Dale Ralph Davis helped me see that these three themes can be put under three words that begin with the letter P, which seems highly appropriately since uh, considering we're dealing with an acrostic here. The three words are posture, perspective, and provision. Posture, perspective, and provision. The word posture represents how a believer is meant to react to life circumstances as they come upon us. Now, I am about to give you the overarching secret to this psalm. Now, I hesitate to do so because I'm concerned that you're going to hear my oversimplification of this concept, and you're going to think, well, yeah, that makes sense, and then think that's all there is to this psalm, and just move on without seeing the full beauty of its application verse by verse. So don't do that. Don't oversimplify this. But throughout this psalm, There are a host of imperatives commanding the believer on how to respond in certain situations. Verse 1, fret not yourself, which literally means don't get heated, and be not envious. Verse 3, trust in the Lord. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 7, be still before the Lord. Verse 8, refrain from anger. Verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. Verse 34, wait for the Lord. Verse 37, observe the blameless. Lots of actions that the reader is to take, but they all have one common theme, that of posture. The believer is to recognize that God has placed you in the specific situation that you are in so that you might express faithfulness to him. I'm going to say that one more time. God has placed you in the specific situation that you were in so that you might express faithfulness to him. That can be hard to take. But the very nature of wisdom literature implies that you're going to have difficult choices to make in life, and you must choose in a single moment, will I trust God or will I gratify my flesh? As verse 4 teaches, obeying God does not mean a life without delight and achieving desires. However, choosing not to adhere to God, as verses 16 to 17 or 35 through 36 affirms, may give some satisfaction for a period, 
but it will always lead to destruction. So our posture must be one of humility and acceptance that God has placed us in times of plenty and in times of need, in times of conflict and in times of peace in order to express our trust in Him. In addition to posture, there's also the theme of perspective. And here I would say that this psalm teaches perspective in two layers, the temporal and the eternal. The psalm overall asks the reader to think upon the long-term outcome of any particular decision, not just think of the present moment that it's made in. So let me illustrate. I was thinking about this the other night. When I'm standing before the door of my refrigerator open, I think y'all all have done that before, right? And you're wondering what to eat. If I made a decision just to gratify my flesh alone, and all of us were choose to do that in just that moment, then most likely we all would currently be obese with high cholesterol and high blood pressure and our teeth about to fall out. But most likely we've all been instructed about how to eat properly due to long-term benefits of health. Psalm 37 operates in the same manner. Don't just think about the present moment, but what the overall outcome will be. So, for example, verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. However, in verse 15, their swords shall enter their heart and their bows shall be broken. One might take advantage of the poor, but eventually it's going to come back to bite them. Or we might consider verse 37. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. In a temporal sense, violence attracts violence. A month ago, I was reading an article regarding a host of recent shootings in Birmingham. And no doubt citizens were fearful that that an active shooter might be loose. But the police authorities diplomatically tried to say that the citizens who are not engaged in criminal activity should have no fear from these types of shootings directly. They were subtly trying to warn that if you're engaged in violent gang behavior, you will reap what you sow. So such a psalm applies even to our current circumstances. But there also seems to be an eternal perspective applied to the psalm. For instance, we read in verse 9, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. That's strange, because the Israelites had already inherited the land. Verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 34, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on, the, uh, on when the wicked are cut off. In verse 37, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. David seems to be implying that there is a long-term situation of you, something beyond just the immediate acquisition of the land, something that of the promised land already inherited by the Jews at the time that seems to foreshadow something more. Now, we're going to look at that just a little bit later in the sermon. So we have posture, we have perspective, and lastly, we have provision. What can get us through these difficult times when we're faced with difficult choices? The psalm indicates that God will provide what we need in such moments. Let's explore a few of these. First of all, by my count, There's 16 times in this psalm that David invokes the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. 
In your English translations, you can see this indicated when Lord is spelled in all capital letters. The name Yahweh, or I am, is reserved for God's covenantal people, the people that he has chosen to be his own, the ones that he has made promises to. Therefore, we can be certain that these promised provisions that Yahweh will give to us and do for us in the midst of these difficult circumstances to his faithful people. In verse 5, he declares that he will act. In verse 6, he will uphold justice and he will bring forth your righteousness. In verse 17, contrary to the wicked, the Lord upholds or embraces the righteous. In verse 18, the Lord knows all motives. In verse 24, he promises his child will not be cast headlong even if he should fall. In verse 28, Yahweh will not forsake his saints. In fact, he preserves them forever. In verse 33, the Lord will not abandon his child to the power of the wicked. And beautifully, in the final two verses, Yahweh is a stronghold who provides deliverance and salvation. Now, this would be enough knowing that that God always has your back. But in addition to this, there are two more provisions. One is the provision of justice. You cannot read through this psalm without seeing that. Yahweh loves justice. He will uphold it. The righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. So if you ever wonder if the person who speaks a lie about you or the person who intentionally hurts you or the person who's next to you cheating on the test will get caught and dealt with, the Lord assures us this will be the case. Justice will be served. And the last provision, just as we can expect of him, David is a Bible man. He assumes the believer will be guided by the Scriptures. Therefore, he writes in verse 30 to 31, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. It is the promise of God that directs the path of the righteous. And the promise of Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant is that the Holy Spirit will write his words on our hearts impress the truths of scriptures into our very being. So graduates and moms, I would encourage you, get all the words of the Bible that you can. Make it a regular habit of seeking it out daily. Even if all you can do in the time that you have is just to read and meditate on one verse a day, that will be a blessing to you. So a brief recap. You have the posture of knowing that God has placed you in this situation to express your faithfulness in Him. Have the long-term perspective, both in the temporal and the eternal, and as you do, accept and apply the provisions of the Lord. So what guarantees do we have that this Old Testament psalm that's written nine centuries before the birth of Jesus are still applicable to us today? If I hold the posture and the perspective, is the provision still there? Well, for that, let's take a brief look at the comments of one of the greatest Old Testament scholars who ever lived, which are found in Ephesians chapter 1. Please turn in your Bibles to that passage. Again, it's page 976. Most scholars, 
of which I am one, believe that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians similar to a form letter. The ideas of this letter were circulated to multiple churches. It's just that we happen to have the letter to the church at Ephesus. And the implication of such thought is that the contents of the letter are not specific to one location, but they should be applied to all churches everywhere at any time. So after the greeting, Paul writes in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So first, reread that. What has God the Father blessed us in Christ with? Okay, Doug Thomas is not here. He's looking after Stephanie today. I need your help. Every spiritual blessing, just a few blessings? Every, no, all of them, right? Let's read on. Y'all are a little hesitant this morning. I'm not trying to trick you. The the answer is always in the text. It's always going to be there, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This was the Lord's plan all along. It meant it not only included the Jews, but the plan from all of eternity included all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, to be holy and blameless and receive these spiritual blessings. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do we have provision? I would say so. In Christ, we have adoption. Grace, redemption, forgiveness, mercy, wisdom, and insight. Paul says we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. How many blessings do you think Jesus, the Son of God, has? How many? Like Paul, I would say all of them, right? Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And here we have perspective. The long view of the internal inheritance. Remember the promise of the inheriting the land back in Psalm 37? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So let's ask ourselves after reading this, can we have a posture of obedience and faith in every situation that the Lord puts us in? Yes. Can we have a long view perspective that what we do matters eternally? Yes. Can we have hope that the Lord will provide us with every spiritual blessing as we endure? 
Yes, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not give us all things? And what is this guarantee that this psalm is still applicable to us? As you can see throughout Ephesians' words by the words, in Christ, Jesus Christ, in him, in the beloved, it was secured by the precious blood of Jesus. There is nothing that is of infinite worth compared to the blood of Jesus. And the assurance is the Holy Spirit who is working the truth of the Scriptures in our hearts, just like Psalm 37 said, until the day we reach our full redemption. What promises, graduates? What assurances, mom? We could end this sermon right there. But I need to take just a brief moment to get practical with you. I promise we're almost done here. How do you use this wisdom psalm in everyday life if we want it to be a benefit to us? We need to use all of it, not just a verse or two. Remember, as an acrostic, David intended this to be the A to Z of life. An acrostic means he also wanted you to memorize it. First, take verse 1 and begin to meditate and chew on it a little and, and try to commit it to memory, all right? Now, we don't have Brother Brian up here at the moment, but I'm sure he would tell you, graduates, I'm sure you remember this, he would like you to marinate in it and stew in it just a little bit, right? Be able to do that? They're all granted, Brian. You got the, the point across. And verse 1 is a good one to think about how you apply it. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Like I mentioned before, this literally means don't get overheated. Don't get overheated. When you see something that seems unjust to you, slow down in your anger. Don't let it take control of you. In addition to wisdom, I, I would say that's just really good advice. When you get cut off by the car beside you, don't get overheated. When the snarky professor in class mocks you for your faith or your lack of knowledge in the subject in order to puff himself up, don't get overheated. When you read the article in the newspaper about politics, don't get overheated. Don't get overheated. Begin to think about your posture, your perspective, and your provisions in the moment. Certainly don't envy the evildoer and thinking that they're getting away with something. They are not. God ensures justice. I want y'all to remember that, all you bad drivers out there. Because <laughs> I have to say that to myself quite a bit when I'm driving. Don't get overheated. And then after you've committed verse 1 to memory, move on to verse 2. It will remind you what happens to those who ignore God, even those who claim to be Christians. It might reveal to you that they're not Christians at all. And then after you commit verse 2 to memory, move on to verse 3, and then go all the way to verse 40. Now, to be sure, as you memorize each one, a particular verse might not seem like you need it at that exact moment. But just wait. You're going to discover in life that at some point it's going to apply. And you'll be glad that you have that in your arsenal of truth when the enemy assaults you. My dear brother and my dear sisters, if there is any word of advice that I could offer you right now in this moment in your life, is, is the same that I'm sure every mother would tell you in this room. 
Get the Word of God. Soak it up. Memorize it. It will guide you in every decision. It is something you can trust in, you can rely upon. I can tell you after years and years of studying it, I have yet to find a mistake in it or a way that it has misled me. And you're going to have a lot of other things in your life seem more important than getting hold of this. But I promise you, if you get hold of this, this is the way of the righteous. This is the way of wisdom. This is the way to inherit the land. It is what you need day to day, every moment of your life. You know why? Because it's always going to teach you to go back to rely on Christ, that Christ is sufficient. What he's done for you is sufficient. You're going to blow it. You're going to mess up. We all have. But you will remember in such moments that Jesus Christ is all you need. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray for Carter and for Elizabeth and for Becca and for Abigail. I pray specifically for them this morning, Lord, that their futures are, are wide in front of them. Graduation is just a point in which we mark your faithfulness and then we move on to the next part of life that you place us in to express our faithfulness again to you. And so, Lord, I pray that as they go to their individual schools or their jobs, that, Lord, you would watch over them and that, Lord, you would impress upon them through the power of your Spirit how desperately they need to hear from your Word every day. I pray, Lord, that you would use it in their hearts to guide them, to mold them, to be men and women of great character, and that through them, Lord, their lives would bring glory to you. I pray, Lord, that even in the the dark times, the times where they may have a girlfriend or boyfriend break up with them, the times when they just feel like, I don't have enough time to get it all done, the times, Lord, when they don't pass the exam and they feel the weight and the pressure of such moments or not delivering on the expectations of an employer, I pray that they would be reminded through the word that you have hidden in their heart, that Christ is sufficient. And that every need has been taken care of at the cross because of what Christ has done for us. And because of that, they have every spiritual blessing that Christ Jesus has. And just as I pray this for our four graduates, I pray it for every single person in this room. May we all take heed, Lord, and love your word. May we delight in you because we know that, Lord, you give us the desires of our hearts when we delight in you, and our greatest delight is you. May that be the case for us today. And, Lord, every trial that we face, we pray we would take the wisdom of your word. We pray we would apply it in such moments so that you might receive the glory. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.